Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name's Dave Pickering, and in 2011, I started to record conversations with people I know, from my closest friends and family to people that I hardly know at all. Conversations about their lives and their interests, their passions and their ideas, trying to find out a little bit more about who they are, and in the process of that, find out a little bit more about myself and about the world in general. It's part oral history and part autobiography through conversation. Over the years, it's been recommended by The Guardian, by Radio 5 Live, by Time Out, by The Financial Times, and just this year, it won a British Podcast Award. To give you an idea of what the show's like, here are some clips from some of my most recent guests. There's certain ways you can be for someone to support you. So you can be a victim, you can be someone who needs saving, but then when you're the one saying, okay, here's me wanting to say something, here's me being autonomous, here's me having agency, then that's not fitting in with that um, narrative of right. what a Muslim woman or a black woman or a minority should, should be. And I remember I was going across London Bridge on a bus and I realised that I could stop and I realised that... I could continue, and instead of looking back to somewhere deep in the past, looking for the point where I decided this was what I was going to do, I was going to right now decide. If I was doing waitressing, if I was doing bar work, I would have to deal with guys like hitting on me and, and be nice and everything, because I'd either be looking to get tips or I'd be looking just to kind of keep the peace or whatever. Right. But like as a stripper, I'm either A, getting paid well for that labour, or I'm B, able to say, actually, I'm going to go, and they can't do anything. Right. You know what I mean? When I spoke to my career teacher and came home and was discouraged, yeah, my parents said this to me, you don't need anybody's permission to be a great mathematician. You can find Getting Better Acquainted anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and those kind of places. Gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 80. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and after reading that the Queen's estate has invested millions in offshore tax-avoiding accounts, I can't help but feel that if they could just send Her Majesty to the Cayman Islands as well, then us taxpayers wouldn't have to pay for a fucking heating bill. The Paradise Papers sounds like it could be a sitcom about a youth press team on an idyllic island who solve crimes while swanning about in swimwear, but sadly the reality is that it's much more like a Columbo remake where you know exactly who done it right from the start, but catching them is super hard on account of them being so rich they don't even pay for their misdemeanours. 13.4 million documents, aka one of your boring Twitter threads, have been leaked from a leading offshore finance firm detailing how, much like was revealed with the Panama Papers two years ago, ultra-wealthy moneybags have been secretly investing money so they can avoid paying millions in tax. Among others, this leak has revealed that Commerce Secretary to US President and pumpkin carved with a plastic spoon, Donald Trump, has a stake in a Russian firm that has been sanctioned by the US, yet again proving Donald Trump has more connections to Russia than the Drisba oil pipeline. 
Also on the list, a Conservative peer and a man who looks like you could only catch him with a Velcro roller, Lord Ashcroft, who avoided questions from the BBC's Panama reporter by hiding in a toilet, which is the only public service he's ever contributed to. On the footage of him being confronted, Lord Ashcroft just replies to all questions with dear, 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 presumably his comment on how costly to the UK his tax avoidance is. Also on the list is U2 frontman and Glamour magazine's 2016 Woman of the Year because he's the sort of guy that would try that level of identity fraud if it'd mean he could avoid paying even more taxes. That's right, Bono. A man who can't give to society but happily gives away free albums to people that don't want them like if the Red Cross ran over people so they could turn up at your house and forcefully do surgical suture on your perfectly fine arm. Oh, and also implicated are three actors from Mrs Brown's Boys, proving that they are yet again involved in something that is no laughing matter. The Boston Consulting Group says about $10 trillion is held offshore, and either governments need to curb this and reclaim it, or we all need to start drawing up some modern-day treasure maps pretty damn soon. Meanwhile, in Westminster, there have been even more accusations about sexual harassment by politicians who seem to completely understand what no means when it comes to voting for things that might benefit the public, but not in any other area of life. There has rightfully been a lot of fallout from this, and based on the past week, you'd almost wonder if Guy Fawkes would have had better luck skipping the gunpowder and destroying Parliament by leaking WhatsApp messages about perverts instead. Allegations about Michael Fallon lunging at a journalist and touching another one's knee show that he was far more of a disgusting offence secretary than a defence one, and he stepped down from his role in the cabinet as a result. Michael Fallon, a man who was worryingly previously thought of as a safe pair of hands, said that his conduct had fallen below the high standards we require of the armed forces, which is an arguable statement if you remember Abu Ghraib. Michael Fallon hasn't resigned as an MP, meaning that he obviously thinks his conduct is totally fine for the people of Sevenoaks, though. And after his resignation, Fallon, a terrifying image of what Beaker from the Muppets would look like if he was old, fat and a sex offender, told papers that his behaviour was acceptable ten years ago, which it wasn't, but it does also suggest for the first time that he preferred life under a Labour government. Incidentally, the only time the excuse this behaviour was acceptable ten years ago is allowed is if you're 14 and you just shat yourself in public. Prime Minister and only person to get an error 404 code when she does a personality test, Theresa May, appointed a new Defence Secretary in the terrifying shape of Gavin Williamson, former Chief Whip, a.k.a. the man who was in charge of the dossier of indiscretion in the first place. Yes, it's very much like keeping your friends close and you're... No, wait, that is... that is it. It does sound more, though, like Williamson appointed himself than May did, and many Conservative MPs are very angry with one unnamed politician telling press that hearing about his appointment was like a cold cup of sick. And hey, they would know having had to do those sorts of public school initiations. Williamson is well known for keeping a pet tarantula in his office, though I'd argue based on the past few weeks that's probably one of the least creepy things in Parliament right now. Other names exposed this week have been Secretary of the State Damien Green, who police have claimed had extreme porn on his parliamentary computers in 2008, which in any other job is gross misconduct, and also back in 2008, a real drain on data usage and broadband speed. But Green has not yet been suspended, possibly because depending on the porn found, suspending him might be a turn-on. Conservative MP Charlie Elphick has been suspended, and Tory whip and very unfortunately named Christopher Pincher has handed himself into the police. It's important to remember, though, that this is a cross-party problem, not just an issue with the Conservatives, and there have been several reports of abusive behaviour within the Labour Party too, with former Labour NEC member Bex Bailey very bravely revealing that she was raped by a party figure at a Labour event in 2011, but was discouraged from reporting it by a Labour official who warned that doing so could really damage her. Which is really chilling to hear that. I mean, the idea that it's more important to a party that a victim stays victimised rather than supporting her and clamping down on abuse, that's really upsetting. And it really calls into question just what Labour mean by for the many, not the few. Vulgar Gooseberry and Labour MP Kelvin Hopkins has been suspended following allegations of sexual misconduct towards a young Labour activist. And Labour leader and coddled egg enthusiast Jeremy Corbyn has defended promoting Hopkins as Shadow Culture Secretary in 2016, despite knowing about the allegations, as he said he thought the case had been closed. Which just goes to show that if you have been accused of a crime and you are struggling to find work, it might well be worth trying for Parliament, as they seem a lot more lax about it than anywhere else. 
There have been quite a lot of huffy complaints by angry male commentators that all of this is just a witch hunt against men or some sort of liberal attack that will lead to a total ban on all sex, which it isn't. It's about consent, safety and stopping those in power thinking they can do what they like to people against their will. If you genuinely can't tell the difference between consensual flirting, consensual sex and harassment, I suggest you put exactly that on your Tinder profile and we'll all enjoy watching you spend the rest of your life completely alone. Or in prison. Or both. In other news, Labour have accused the Conservatives of sabotaging a proposal to lower the voting age to 16 after Tory MPs made very long speeches reducing the time available for it to be heard. Of course, the irony is that the longer the speeches from the Tories, the more time will pass and those 16-year-olds will get closer to being allowed to vote at 18 and then kicking them all out. Conservatives also abstained on another opposition day motion last week, this time on a vote to force the government to release the Brexit impact reports. It passed unanimously, but Speaker Burkow advised that as it was a humble address, not just an opposition day motion, it should be seen as binding. If the Conservatives are going to keep mocking these opposition day motions, I really think the next one should just be a vote that proves all the Tories smell and abstaining means you agree. And then we'll see what they do, right? Secretary of State for International Development and Disney villain-in-waiting, Priti Patel, has had to apologise after it was revealed that she held a number of undisclosed meetings with Israeli officials while she was on a private holiday. I mean, I've had shit holidays, but how bad are your hotel breakfasts and music at the pool to make you think, hey, you know what, how about I skip having cocktails on the beach today to instead meet a veritable war criminal who thinks Trump is courageous? Still, I suppose this does justify why she previously said she thought British workers were lazy. I mean, look at all of them, having an actual holiday while on holiday. Weird. Meeting with foreign officials without government approval is a breaking of ministerial code, especially when, as in this case, no officials were present and absolutely no minutes were kept. But Patel insists the Foreign Office and Foreign Secretary and human pillowcase filled with mashed potato Boris Johnson knew about the meetings as they were underway. So not in advance, but while they were happening, which is kind of like the political version of indicating while you're already turning. Pretty Patel also mentioned that it was 12 meetings and not a handful as previously suggested, which kind of makes it all worse, and that she's gained commissioning work as a result of them. Labour have called for an inquiry into the matter and she has been personally reprimanded by Theresa May, which probably meant Theresa May mumbled a bit while Pretty stood there knowing full well that if she's fired, then this past week has left the Prime Minister with less of a cabinet and more of a single draw bedside table. And the Bank of England have risen interest rates for the first time in a decade, which is great for savers, terrible for mortgage owners, and very confusing for people like me who are saving in the hope that one day, eventually, I might be able to get a mortgage. This information comes as the National Institute of Economic and Social Research said that it's certain that Brexit has already cost each household more than £600 per year. And I can't help but wish that instead we'd all had a vote in 2016 just for every home to have two Nintendo Switches instead. I mean, we'd all be just as broke, but far happier, although I guess there'd probably be still some issues about giving all the taxpayers money to a plumber from Italy. Hey, Podchamps! Here we are again, uh, another week of news that people are terrible, and another podcast where jokes feel inappropriate to everything. Hooray! Um, I should say, I'm not even going to go near the US stuff this week, where politicians seem to think it's helpful to send prayers to people who were attacked by a gunman in a church while praying. Yeah, great, that'll be really useful, like sending lilos to the victims of a tsunami. God, see what I mean about comedy feeling inappropriate? Um, but thank you for listening, pod listeners. Um, thank you also to all the brilliant people who reviewed the podcast on iTunes last week. There was a ton of nice ones that all appeared as I repeatedly refreshed the page for the billionth time like someone with needy gratification issues um, and they are all super appreciated so thank you. Um, as clever pod people keep telling me, and by that I mean other people that do podcasts, not weird alien types who live in cocoon type enclosures um, reviews do help you grow an audience and so if you haven't given the show a review on your iTunes or Stitcher or Podhole or Castars or Audio Bastard okay I've made the last few ones up, but wherever you can review the show please do as it really does help both for listeners and my general nervous dependence on praise um, also big thank you to Catherine for the Kofi donation this week and again if you want to donate to helping me make this show better by either being able to take more time out to do it or you know just so I can afford a gold lame hat to wear while recording so the quality resonates through the audio um, I honestly just had to google what lame is I am so unaware um, then you can give a monthly donation to patreon.com forward slash parpalbro where I have completely failed to add any sort of bonuses but hey I will do one day in the future maybe very far future um, 
or you can give a one-off donation to Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash bro. so please do right a uh, few things to plug this week before we get cracking um, as mentioned last week I'm doing my most recent Edinburgh Fringe show Miserably Happy at 2 North Down in King's Cross on Sunday the 19th of November it's right by the station um, and that is at 8.15pm and that'll probably be the last time I ever do it live because wow I've said those words a lot and I'd like to stop now um, tickets are only £5 and you can grab them at tickettext.co.uk uh, if you search for my name on that site um, and I'm going to be filming it so please 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 come and fill seats um, if only so it looks more like a comedy special rather than say a lonely man just berating some empty chairs for 60 minutes um the other show I want to plug as well uh, is uh, on November the 21st, I am hosting a show at Arts at the Old Fire Station in Oxford as part of a really amazing bill featuring Josie Long, Johnny and the Baptists, Stuart Goldsmith and Bishop K. Ali. Um, if you don't know any of them, check them all out. They're all wonderful. Um, and the night is all to raise money for the fire station's tireless charity work in helping the homeless, which they uh, do lots of. Um, the night is called Bar Humbug, and you can grab tickets for that at oldfirestation.org.uk. So, again, if you're in the Oxford area, please come along. Um, lastly, I regularly forget to mention other podcasts I like on this here one. Uh, and considering you're definitely podcast listening types, um, what do you mean you didn't know you were? Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's all good. This isn't just how bird songs sound where you live. No, this is a podcast. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, for those of you that do like listening to podcasts, uh, I am a big fan of talking politics and reasons to be cheerful for my weekly politics, Phil. But also, this week, um, I would like to plug a Canadian podcast, Semi-Intellectual Musings. Uh, not only because they were very kind enough to pop a promo for this show on theirs, uh, but also, it's a very good podcast. Um, it's very interesting every single week. And this week's episode is particularly great. Uh, and it's about uh, Blade Runner, both old and new, but also um, about Gord Downey, the lead singer of Tragically Hip, who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, and anyway, I, I don't want to tell you more about it. Do give it a go. It's called Semi-Intellectual Musings, uh, and it's a really good listen. Right, um, on this week's show, I am not going to look at the Paradise Papers, as I'm sure there's going to be more on that by next week. Um, not everything will come out by the time of recording. So instead, and more important right now, I am talking to Charlotte Chorley at What Women Want to Point all about the prevalence of sexual harassment not only in Parliament and Hollywood but also, well, sadly, everywhere uh, and also on gender equality in general. Also, there is a bit of a look at just what it is that chief whips do. Spoiler, it's not being great at ice cream. Uh, yeah, uh, there's also some of this shiz. In Parliament on Friday, Labour MP for Oldham, Jim McMahon, put forward a debate on lowering the age of voting to 16. And it's not just because in every picture of Jim McMahon, he looks like a kid who's just received his A-level results and, hey, did really well. Currently in England and Wales, you can legally have sex at 16, get married, drive a moped, get a national insurance number, choose your GP, leave home, pilot a glider plane, buy a lottery ticket, apply for a passport without parental consent, change your name by deed poll, join a trade union and join the army. But while the prospects of spending your 16th birthday riding a 50cc scooter onto a battlefield with your newlywed loved one might seem very exciting, it's somewhat dampened by having no say or vote in who gets to make the larger decisions about your future. Especially when so many of the votes in recent years are going to affect younger people far more than those who are going to be long dead by the time Brexit arrives and robots have all the jobs. Scotland lowered the age of voting to 16 for the independence referendum in 2014 and they've kept it for Scottish Parliament elections, but they can't allow it for the Westminster ones. Wales is now looking at very similar for the Welsh Assembly and if you look at other countries such as Germany, Nicaragua, Brazil, Ecuador, Austria and Argentina, they all have voting from 16 as well. But in the UK, there's a resistance from the Conservatives in particular to allow 16-year-olds to vote in UK parliamentary elections. On Friday, several Conservative MPs spoke for an overly long time to ensure that the whole debate was massively delayed, meaning that they didn't have time to finish it and pushing it to a second debate on December the 1st. They gave various excuses such as generic Conservative man, I mean really you try and find a better description for him, Bernard Jenkin, saying that 16 or 17 year olds don't have the level of political knowledge or maturity required for voting. Which is absolute bollocks, as I reckon I've met seven-year-olds who make more sensible voting decisions than most adults have done at the last two elections, let alone 16-year-olds who the same party keep existing they have to try and appeal to. Well, telling the 16-year-olds they aren't clever enough to vote might not help that youth appeal, eh, Tories? 
One of the main reasons the Conservatives might not be that keen on younger people voting is that several surveys over the last few years have shown that they like to reject the ideas of a capitalist society, have shown that those younger people often reject the ideas of a capitalist society and tend to prefer the possibility of a Labour government on account of their having spent more recent years under rule from a man who almost certainly had sex with a pig's head and a woman who spent lots of money losing seats at an election rather than anyone that actually cared about their futures. There are currently 15 million 16 and 17 year olds in the UK, so that could make quite a difference to future elections if they were allowed to and enthused to take part. You only need to look at the members of youth parliament to see that many of them would provide a far more sensible debate than I'm not sure they have the level of political knowledge required, even though if those younger MPs did say that about many older people, they'd probably be right. Sadly, it is anticipated that not enough parliamentary time will be found to make votes for 16 and 17 year olds law, proving that once again, there's never any time for young people. The British Youth Council has a Votes at 16 campaign, which you can find at votesat16.org or on Twitter at votesat16 if you're a young person or, well, of any age and just want to get involved in giving younger people a voice in UK democracy. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of women being allowed to vote in the UK. It's really odd to think that up until 1918, only men were allowed to exercise the democratic right to not vote because it's raining outside and then spend the next four years blaming everyone else for things being a bit shit. But despite a century of voting, women still aren't represented properly in Parliament, with only 208 female MPs out of 650 in the Commons. And as the last few weeks of news has shown, it's not exactly a welcoming atmosphere for any women who want to pursue a career in politics. There is still a lot of gender inequality in society too, with a recent survey showing the gender pay gap was from anywhere between 18 to 54% in earnings difference between men and women all over the UK. The city of Chester was the 54% difference, as it seems that it's not just the walls there that are medieval. Evidence shows that all the government's austerity measures hit women twice as hard as men, and then there's the doubling of rape reports in the UK over the last few years, but yet the lowest rape conviction rates in all of Europe. And the representation of women in all of our media is still pretty ropey. I mean, come on, if the last time I got sand in my underwear is anything to go by, absolutely no one wants to be beach body ready, whatever they tell you. Tammy Wynette was not at all wrong when she said sometimes it's hard to be a woman. I mean, except with all the rest of that song because it's generally about being submissive and forgiving to yet another shitty man. But as one of them men things, I'm genuinely baffled and upset by the fact that in 2017, in a supposedly developed country, we still treat 51% of the global population with less respect than the other 49%. And it's especially baffling considering most of the same people who decry that feminism is evil, etc, etc, would see those percentages in a referendum and demand that the will of the people is respected in favour of the 51 so, with the news being filled with cases of sexual harassment in Westminster, equal payday being on November the 10th, and people still getting angry about the new Doctor Who, I spoke this week to Charlotte Chorley at What Women Want 2.0. We spoke about what everyone should be doing to further gender equality in the UK and the upcoming What Women Want 2.0 survey report. And look, I usually do a bit more in this interview preamble, but rather than me badly mansplain, I'm going to hand over to Charlotte to tell you what Women Want is actually all about. And I should say that's the survey and the group, not the Mel Gibson film, What Women Want, uh, which for every year since it's been out is becoming more and more evident the answer is definitely not him. Oh, and apologies for some of the fireworks noises in the background that I tried to edit uh, because it turns out that uh, my neighbours think the rhyme is remember, remember every fucking day in November because it seems there's some sort of arsonist bastards. Anyway, so What Women Want 2.0, the survey. Here is Charlotte Chorley to tell you what it's all about. So, hi, Charlotte. Um, first question, really, is can you tell me and the listeners what uh, what Women Want 2.0 is all about um, and what do you aim to find out from it? Yeah. Um, so the campaign is a response to uh, a 1996 com- campaign by the same name, um, which basically asked women across the UK to answer uh, the simple question of what do you want on a postcard? Um And it was kind of a unique campaign in that it offered this space for women to kind of uh, answer on their own terms and in their own words, rather than sort of like having something put uh, in in their voice for them. Um, And it kind of exceeded expectations and 10,000 women answered the call. And it was um, this kind of like landmark piece of of insight that really nicely tied in with the landslide Labour victory. Um, 
and areas that they kind of like drew out kind of fed into the policies that we saw um, under Blair. So around equal pay and economic empowerment and like maternity leave and sexual harassment. Um, so it was really important. And then in 2016, um, basically they had the idea to kind of rejuvenate it um, and, and see if there have been um, any changes in what people wanted um, and like how far things had actually progressed. So, um, yeah, we set out um, to reach as many women as possible um, and I've worked with like a range of um, different stakeholder organisations like Stonewall and Girl Guiding and the Muslim Women's Network to get as many different uh, women from as many different backgrounds as possible. Um, the survey closed at the beginning of October and we had at the close of that around 9,300 valid response responses, which like... I like I think it's pretty pretty amazing um and already there are kind of some key themes coming out around like sadly some of the similar issues are around like sexual harassment and equal pay um and it's kind of yeah quite quite shocking to see that so many of those issues from 1996 haven't really changed 20 years on Oh, that's really depressing, isn't it? It's really horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's one of the issues you touched on there, and obviously we talk, have to talk about because it's been in the news the last few weeks, but, the, <laughs> you know, it's been very, it's been quite obvious that uh, sexual harassment is still very, very prevalent in quite a lot of areas of society, and particularly we've seen sort of Parliament and Hollywood. Um, and as that's mm. something that came up in the 1996 survey as well, do you think that things have got worse or do you think we're now hearing about it more and people are able to speak up more? Um, mm. What do you? Why do you think this has all kind of come out? Now? Yeah. God, that kind of just been like dominating my newsfeed recently. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I'd say it's got worse. And I think probably the fact that both 1996 and 2016 What Women Want surveys like have the similar theme probably exemplifies that this is something that women have long been experiencing and I don't think the issues are necessarily new which is probably like part of the problem but I definitely do think that we have um a language now to talk about it with so even in the last five years I don't know about you but like terms such as like large culture and rape culture and toxic masculinity have like become much more commonplace and much more accessible to using like sort of everyday conversations and I think like with that becoming a lot more aware and a lot more empowered to um to address these kind of issues but um like with that like I don't think many women were surprised about the revelations around like Harvey Weinstein or, or parliament I don't think you know it was a shock to any of us I think like sexual harassment is something that happens on a daily basis and um in a way like something that I've been trying to like think about recently is like it's actually uh, a privilege to be shocked by it so like to live in a world where like constant kind of looking and touching and commenting isn't a thing that you actually experience is a privilege um but for women like it's just like an everyday reality and um it, it like I don't know like it's kind of I think the language the way the media is reporting on kind of like Hollywood and Westminster at the moment is like sort of demonizing a few men as like really really bad really bad examples um and like failing to take account for the fact that um and I think the survey responses do draw on this is that like so many of the practices are actually like really insidious so like we kind of permit and like even sort of like yeah tolerate the kind of like catcalling and wolf whistling and like don't necessarily give it credit for like when things escalate but i think it's all part of it i think like these small behaviors when you're told they're okay like they escalate um but i don't know like i definitely feel like there's a kind of with that like a profound shift coming on like the me too campaign is just the beginning and i remember like logging onto my newsfeed on like twitter and facebook and just seeing kind of like all these different voices coming out from like women that i've known for for years and like they're things we've never talked about before so i think there is, I don't know, like, I feel like there is this movement and I think things like What Women Want and, and the Me Too ca campaign kind of um, hopefully will help us move a bit closer to shutting it down <laughs> in the future. Sure. I mean, because it's just what you said, and I, you know, I, I've followed everyday sexism on Twitter for quite a few years mm -hmm. now. And I remember when I first started doing that feeling really, like, disturbed by just how much stuff they were pouring out and it does feel like now it's kind of like the news has only just cottoned on in the last couple of weeks yeah and you sort of go i'm pretty sure it's been happening for ages um but i, I suppose one of the things that seems uh whether or not it's been obvious to many people for many years the fact that it's now coming out that this thing is happening in parliament supposedly the yeah. the you know the people in charge of the country um that feels like that has quite a, a, a dramatic effect on society knowing that that's taking place and, and I, I wanted to sort of ask do you think that 
you know, because Parliament, I think, has its own kind of rules and its own way. It doesn't have like an HR department. It doesn't seem mm. to have a system with dealing things. What kind of do you think that that we need to see massive changes there first before we can see them elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the fact that this is like happening in a place where people are elected and publicly accountable just like frustrates me so much in that these are people that we choose to represent kind of us and our best interests. And if these are people who are like going around and sort of like commenting or touching inappropriately or, or doing things worse, like I just, I just, you know, it just frustrates me so much. But, um, I think you're right when saying that like, there is this kind of absence of normal workplace practice um, and the need for like a clear statement of what isn't isn't acceptable behaviour just like needs to be there. And I think as well a system of uh, penalties that actually empowers people to come forward and trust that their voices will be heard, not just swallowed up into the depths of like this big institutional Westminster machine, I think is um, really important. Like the fact that so many of these allegations were initially shared on a private WhatsApp group is like testament to the fact that women, like that victims don't feel they'll be listened to. Um, and I think it's just one of those things where it's really great that there there is sort of public attention on it now. And I hope that will spur some kind of action to it. But like, again, like this has been happening for ages. And I think that there needs to be yeah, like a bit of a, a bit of a shake up. And I think it's not going to be an easy ride, both reputationally and structurally, but it has to, has to be worth it. And I think, I don't know, like, as I said previously, like there's the fact that the media is kind of like already mitigating it by sort of demonizing a few men as bad and not really looking at the extreme. And the thing that some things like, um, MPs taking their physios out or using the language, like, like sugar tits, for example, are trivialized is like, is really awful and i think it is like part of this like structure that just means that like only the really extreme manifestations of sexual harassment and assault can like be taken seriously but um i think it was like uh joe joe brand on like have i got news for you who basically highlighted that like something doesn't have to be high level for it to be important and for women to feel under siege and like usually it's the fact that it builds up and wears you down that is the real issue here so i think um yeah, I think maybe there does need to be some kind of, like, clarity of of what is acceptable and what will actually happen when someone comes forward. And, like, you know, whether people want to step forward and, and still remain anonymous is something that I think is going on in discussions now. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah. And I think, like, on that, like, one thing to say is that the What Women Want report in March is going to hopefully bring together MPs from the four main parties to tackle some of the questions and, like, address this theme of sexual harassment. So hopefully it will kickstart some conversations internally about what needs to be done to realise this kind of change across party lines, because it's, it's something that affects every party. Like, no one's kind of immune from this. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think that's one of the things that's been quite clear. And, uh, uh, again, I think... Personally, I sort of feel like the issues with the way Parliament is organised and that each party has to deal with it themselves. There's no sort of overarching mm. body that kind of uh, can can deal with safeguarding practices and things like that. It's it it lends itself, I think, to to abuse. Really, I they should just have yeah. parliamentary HR. That's what I really believe. Anyway, um, <laughs> but but do, I mean, the, one of the things that I noticed on the What Women Want Two Point website is that um, you know you highlight the fact that only 32% of MPs are women, which is better than it was in 1996, but it's still mm -hmm. not representational of society is it i mean do you think no. that, that parliament as a kind of uh you know as a system could be improved with better representation yeah definitely i think the fact that um you know you always hear these criticisms of westminster being this like uh stale male and pale boys club i think it's like totally <laughs> totally justified and like i think it's part of the problem as to like why we're seeing these things um happening now like you know, I think we're only just starting to promote activities that try to address the balance. Like, all women shortlist, for example, are a great start. But I think as well, something that um, the Survey Insights in their kind of diversity have, like, really realised is that we often, when we talk about representation, we often talk about, like, getting more white women in quite privileged positions into, into political power. And I think that, like, you know, they're as a minority group, often the most likely to go into politics. But I think that there needs to be a real opportunity to diversify representation beyond kind of able-bodied white women and, like, broaden it out to a whole range of minority and, like, diverse backgrounds because only then will you, like, stop hearing a, like, 
sort of really small set of, of voices. So like, it's not just about getting more women, but like more people from every background into it. Um, and I, I think it's just like one of those things where um, the more sort of women, for example, that you see in office and other people like them, the more likely you'll think that you can get involved as well. And you kind of at least at once like challenge the perception of what power, political power looks like. And also ensure that there's going to be a diversity of voices that will bring in a more balanced policy or a more efficient HR system if that's what that's what's required. So I think, yeah, like a badly representative political body results in like bad behavior and like bad policies. Like you see the same in the US where you just get see those like silly pictures of like this all white men panel deciding like women's healthcare rights. And you're just like, that just wouldn't happen. Like that just wouldn't happen if it was like an equal representative political chamber like that's just not acceptable in 2017 like at all absolutely absolutely it's, it's, it's very interesting the sort of uh, the comedy world that uh, i've been uh, involved in it, there was uh, a long period of time where it was very male dominated and it took uh, brilliant comedians like sarah millican for example and sarah pascoe mm-hmm. um and quite sort of strong female stand-ups being popular and becoming more well known for younger female stand-ups to go hey maybe i will do this and so i kind of presume with parliament it you know were this if the sexual harassment is kind of dealt with um and if there are more women mps in parliament that will encourage perhaps more women and people from other uh ethnicity and diversity to get involved as well yeah yeah definitely i think it's one of those things it's just like a self-fulfilling circle like the more people that you see that look like you the more likely you're going to get in and like it'll just become a process in and of itself which i think yeah is really important mm. Definitely. Um, and, and I was going to ask, uh, it's equal pay day on November the 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been uh, part of sort of Theresa May's uh, commitments to kind of tackling uh, the, the gender pay gap. As one of them was that she was going to enforce companies to kind of to reveal their gender pay gaps, but not necessarily have to do anything about them, just reveal them, hoping that would shame them into <laughs> doing something about it. Um, do you think that is going to be effective? Have you got high hopes for that? Um, I think it's a, I think it's a good step. I think that transparency and, and at your point, like shame to some extent is, is a good first step. And like, it, I guess it encourages employers and employees to think about it if they, if it wasn't already on their radar and potentially hopefully encourage them to do something about it. But, um, on that, like in a kind of like similar, similar point to my previous one about the, how the conversation often gets stuck on like a very specific set of people. Like, I feel like the same thing happens with the equal pay discussion, which is like, you often just talk about parity between white men and white women in the same job, um, which necessarily, like, which doesn't really go into like, into it. And I think a lot of, um, the stuff that we've been hearing back is around the kind of stereotyping of jobs. Um, and like the fact that like women often go into lower paid, lower powered jobs around like care and cooking and cleaning, which are often low paid. So the pay gap is more about kind of like structural stereotypes rather than sort of like being paid less for the same job. Um, and then I guess within that, the idea that, you know, those jobs are also often dominated by sort of people from minority backgrounds. So there's a kind of like intersectional element to it as well, which is really rarely pulled out. Um, I think it was like a really great statistic that I have here, which is like, um, according to the Forces Society, Pakistani and Bangladeshi women see the overall, uh, biggest overall gender pay gap at 26% to white British men. And black African women experience the largest full-time gender pay gap at 19.6%. So I think like on average, like we just hear about the kind of like block of women versus block of men and it actually is like super nuanced when you like pull it out and i think it talks not just to gender but race and other social markers too which you won't get from just publishing a gender pay gap like piece of work um so yeah like that's kind of like one point about it and i think another one is like we don't often talk about the fact that this kind of career pay gap happens as well because of like motherhood like women kind of take a gap out of their career to have and raise a child and that means that their kind of like career progression is is halted or stopped and like it's really hard to get back into the swing of a career so i think like we also just need to in terms of like practical steps like need to be supporting mothers and fathers in childcare and and sort of helping them manage a career alongside that 
Sure. So what we need to be looking at, because the government released the, uh, it was David Lammy's um, uh, race uh, inequality disparity yeah. audit, wasn't it, uh, the mm -hmm. other week, which I uh, was very revealing in, in quite a number of areas. But what we need to be doing really, I guess, is, is looking at things like your survey in line with that at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think um, you can't ever really talk about these things in isolation. Like they, they kind of talk to each other. And I think it's often it's easier to talk about uh, gender in that it's often quite a binary, like man versus woman thing, which obviously is like, it's quite incomplete anyway. But um, it's like, it is just so much more numerous on that. And there is like racial politics and stereotyping and like, disability that all plays into it and like that's just never really taken into account and i think the easiest thing is often when you for example talk about the pay gap is like to address able-bodied white people because they're quite like an easy and accessible thing to talk about um and i think you know we often shy away from those like difficult questions and, and like it's just no no longer acceptable so i think definitely like the one women one survey will hopefully pull out those kind of insights and and, and give some kind of like something to root that in and then yeah definitely read it alongside like other pieces of, of research out there and hopefully just have a better more fuller discussion about it sure yeah just we, we just need to progress really as a society though yeah. <laughs> basically you know <laughs> easy, easy done, right? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Charlotte in a minute. But first, now watch me whip, kill it. Now watch me nay nay. Okay. Now watch me whip, 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 whip. I don't know if you, like me, get regularly confused about the way in which Parliament works, but quite a lot of it is very confusing. I mean, so much of it seems to be completely unchanged from the 1800s, and I'm constantly amazed that votes don't end in jousts, or the losing side in debates has to go in the stocks and have tomatoes and the plague chucked at them. I mean, for example, I assumed for many years that the job of the chief whip was for someone who was maybe best at taming lions or Indiana Jones impressions or, I don't know, rounding up all the best parliamentary walnut sweets. But unsurprisingly, it's none of those things. And in fact, with the past week of abuse allegations, I thought it might be important to look at what the job of the whips actually is. According to Parliament.uk, whips are MPs or peers appointed by each party in Parliament to help organise their party's contribution to parliamentary business. It goes on to say that one of their responsibilities is to make sure the maximum number of their party members vote and vote the way their party wants. So that sounds kind of straightforward, right? I mean, they're like the grown-up ones in their group who book the table at the restaurant, order everything and make sure no one skips on paying the bill even though they didn't drink and didn't like the mains and kept complaining about them the whole time and just talked about themselves. Oh, I hate those people. The whips have a lot of influence with party leaders and they keep a close eye on how MPs vote, meaning that new MPs can improve future prospects if they vote properly and similarly, if you defy the whip, it can ruin any chances of a cabinet position. So yeah, makes sense so far, except... That's not quite it. 
because whips and their little black books of information on MPs were the inspiration for House of Cards. That's the UK version, not the US version that's also now wrought with scandal, though personally I think having a sex offender play a US president makes it much more realistic. It is part of the whip's job to collect information on MPs that they can then use to sway them with in future votes. And this has been admitted by previous whips, such as Tim Fortescue, who is a Conservative government whip 1970-73, who told the BBC several years ago that when you're trying to persuade a member to vote the way he didn't want to on a controversial issue, which is part of your job, it is possible to suggest that perhaps it would not be in his interest if people knew something or other very mildly. So, blackmailing, that is, basically, which is a crime in the UK if it involves making a demand with menace and if the blackmailer is set to gain from the result, which, really, all in all, does sound exactly like the job of a whip. But hey, in Parliament, it's all just tradition, right? So it's fine. And if that's not weird enough, chief whips are also known in Parliament as enforcers, which is a pretty sinister name outside of comic books and Swedish metal bands. So, in light of recent allegations, it has to be wondered how much the current government whips knew and still do know about the various MP scandals. As brought up by Labour MP Lisa Nandy at Prime Minister's Questions last week, three years ago she brought evidence to Theresa May that parliamentary whips had used information about sexual abuse to get loyalty and votes from MPs. Lisa Nandy said that she'd brought it up three times and it had been ignored three times, previously mentioning it in regards to the now mostly also ignored child abuse inquiry that was started by Theresa May. There was a lot of talk at the time May announced that inquiry in 2014 that evidence from WIPS records from the 70s and 80s about MPs' involvement in child abuse would start to surface, but a number of senior government figures confirmed that much of those historic notes had conveniently been destroyed. Because, hey, you know, if there was nothing to see, it didn't matter, right? I mean, what better way to prove to the public that there wasn't any damning evidence against abusers in Parliament in those books, like shredding them all to show that, hey, it was just paper that no one will ever see? In response to Nandy's question on Wednesday, Theresa May said there was no excuse for party whips not to report abuse allegations to police. And Home Secretary Amber Rudd has since openly denied that whips keep any sort of black book about MPs anymore, as that's something they haven't done apparently since the 70s and 80s. But knowing Amber Rudd, it now means that instead they have a red or a blue book just for exactly the same purposes. It does just all seem a little bit sinister. But even if the Black Book is gone, the way the whips work is still surrounded in secrecy, with the excuse that it's so the other side doesn't know their tactics, like the world's shittest game of battleships. But what that does mean is that there are no formal ways to report issues within Parliament. No way for MPs or staff to make any complaints about misconduct without it going through to the whips, and then they get to decide whether to do anything with those allegations or just pop them in a book for later use to stop them being ruinous to the party. Yes, the whip system feels less like a structure that should be used for the hub of the country's leadership and more like something from a secret society in a 2000s film starring one of the ones from Dawson's Creek and it sounds as potentially as career-ending for many people as well. The current government chief whip is Julian Smith, a man who reported the Guardian newspaper to the police because they leaked the Edward Snowden files, so it's obvious he's not a fan of people revealing secrets, no matter how much they breach acceptable limits of privacy and safety. Smith was only appointed after former chief whip Gavian Williamson took the position of defence secretary, and he was a man who liked to intimidate MPs as chief whip with his pet tarantula Cronus, as if to say, hey, I have my own web of deceit. So the man that knew the secrets is now in the cabinet in charge of defence secrets and the new man in charge of secrets hates people sharing secrets. I mean, if they do know about further allegations of abuse, it's likely we'll only hear about them if they want us to. And it's this sort of crap and the fact that MPs are allowed to hire their own staff that leads to such an abuse of power in Westminster. I don't know why they can't just scrap this archaic bullshit and just get an HR department instead, though I guess it could be because the whips seem to view anyone other than themselves as only human resources in the first place. And now, back to Charlotte. You're mentioning there as well about the, the maternity leave and things like that. And, um, you know, are there, are there countries we should be looking at? Because I'm, I keep reading stuff about, for example, in, in, in Scandinavia and in mm. Iceland has uh, now, uh, they've enforced um, equal gender pay, I think, haven't they? In, yeah. You know, they're really good with maternity. And they're constantly also, you know, Norway and Denmark, those places are always rated as like the happiest places on earth. And I always think, <laughs> I'm sure there's a connection uh, yeah. between these things. Um, but are there any... Uh, are there any places that you specifically look at and think that they are doing things right and this is what we should be, you know, looking yeah, at Yeah, no, right I think you're right. Like, so, um, like, yeah, Norway and Sweden have this kind of, like, reserve paternity leave, which, like, is just, like, revolutionary in a way and that, like, it completely challenges the, the sort of child-rearing stereotypes that we have that actually just, like, have 
like a profound impact on not only the parents in terms of like their day-to-day lives but like the children as well like seeing both parents take an equal role in parenting I think is like you can't really underestimate how important that is and um that yeah Iceland obviously um like the most gender equal country in the in the world um and I think that as well is like their representation in parliament um for like different different groups is like pretty good so like I think that you see that in their policies is they're just like better policies and more representative and more equal. Um, so yeah, maybe we should just like <laughs> move to <laughs> move to Norway or Iceland instead. <laughs> well, that's it. If here won't change, I guess we'll just have to go elsewhere. Um, that's how it. That feels like quite a bleak, uh, a bleak way of dealing with it. Um, I mean, I, I was going to say. Look, I mean, looking looking at uh, uh, you know what we have done. Do you think? I mean, you know, I know you don't have the results, and you said uh, they're going to be out on March the seventh, which is when you're presenting them to Parliament. Uh, the results of the survey, but. Um, do you do you feel like any progress in equality has been made since 1996 or are we still in exactly the same sort of place um is there any area where you think stuff has improved yeah definitely i mean one of the key things that i kind of found really uh kind of like inspiring was just like the language that people are using um around like empowerment and ambition ambition so i think that certainly since 1996 there has been a popularity of feminism and gender equality in like pop culture i think it's been made much more accessible and people are a lot more confident and positive to uh stand up and like either call themselves a feminist or defend their choices and i think that that has been something like language of like girl power for example was just like sprinkled throughout the responses which is like is really great um and like other things around like women who are carving their own paths in traditionally male dominated fields like stem subjects for example and how we've like heard testimonies of them kind of like setting up their own things and inspiring young girls to do the same which i think is is really positive like and and hopefully politics and political representation will be the next the next kind of big thing that we break into but um so there are some positives and i think but obviously um as we kind of started this conversation like some of the trends are still are still there so um i think in terms of reverse like i don't know like obviously the last two years politically have been a bit of a battering um but we kind of i feel like we're going back to this place of um low social welfare support which is like cutting away at kind of essential women's services and shelters and there's a real squeeze on public services where women mainly work so like things like education and healthcare and that that is kind of really really damaging to women both like socially and economically and i think that there needs to be loads of attention put on that so there's organizations like sisters and cut who have done a lot of raising the profile of the of these cut and and i think that we should be doing more to support those and i think we're also just living in this like polarized world as like brexit and trump have shown which presents like a challenge in itself so like how do you shout across the gulf and build like this broad church opinion which i think is what the survey is trying to do like it's trying to pull from every background and every political opinion and every age and like how do you bring those together in a way that can actually make a difference so like we're obviously really proud that we've got this diversity of stakeholders and voices and we hope that the report is a testament to that and that we can have these honest and difficult conversations with each other and actually that like only then i think can you begin to make the changes that you need to make sure yeah well hopefully and it's you said it was over nine thousand that you received so hopefully you'll get a really clear picture of yeah. common goals uh, uh from women everywhere which would be fantastic yeah, yeah yeah um and and one of the things um I was going to ask you if you think there's anywhere, a, any area that the UK has, has definitely not made progress in, but I feel like that might get quite bleak. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, because you did sort of mention, I know that austerity has hit women twice as hard as it has hit men and, and you know, crisis centres have been shut. And there's a lot of um, it's quite bleak news we've had over the last few years um, yeah. in that area. But uh, slightly, let's go for a slightly more positive question, I think, is what can people do um to highlight and report inequality at their workplace what can they do to um i know that what women want survey is now over but what can they do to help Mm. or raise awareness of your campaign um what can you kind of offer to people as a as an incentive to kind of you know some sort of positive what what on earth can we do what can we do in 2017 (laughs) 
Uh, um, so, um, God, what a question. Um, so I think the, the uh, What Women Want campaign, I think, showed the power of, like, women speaking out on their own and speaking out together. And I think that movements like the Women's March and, and Feminist Fight Club, for example, have demonstrated the importance of women supporting other women. So um, my first thing is, like, always, like, try and break down the barriers of talking about these things. I think I said it earlier about, like, the fact that with the Me Too campaign, seeing people who I've known for, for ages talk about things that I've never heard them talk about before, like, was at once, like, really sad because, obviously, people, like, harbour these feelings and these, these experiences and don't talk about it, but now are feeling empowered to talk about it. So, yeah, break down the barriers of talking about these things with your women colleagues and, and friends and... I think sometimes talking about it's enough, but sometimes you need to get a bit active and, like, go on a march or, like, I don't know, have a craft division afternoon or whatever, but, like, stick with your girl gang. I think that's really important. And then secondly, um, get informed about things, like, especially in the workplace. So, like, know what the policies in place are. Like, does your work have an internal HR thing, for example, unlike Westminster? Like, is it fair and accessible? And if not speak to someone you trust or band together with those people that you've already spoken to and suggest a change because those policies should be there to protect people who have faced these experiences and should not be there to like protect the organization or the perpetrator so yeah get informed about what is out there and then i think lastly find or set up a social group to discuss the issues like i think often there's loads of people in your office for example that are really interested in the issues of diversity and equality and intersectionality but there's no place to channel their interest in it um and i think it's really helpful to know that there's someone that you've got an ally in, in your office so like whether it's a book exchange or a book club or a slack channel for example or just like an actual social group like it can be really helpful to chat about these issues in an, in an abstract way at first like talking about them in kind of like the news for example and then you can learn the principles that can be applied to your day-to-day -day life so um yeah just like build a network of informed people and take solidarity in that yeah that sounds that sounds very sensible <laughs> advice um and i sort of uh, oh god i feel like i'm going to be such an asshole for asking this but it should uh, do you advise the same thing for men as well what uh, that yeah. like such a what about the men's question no, sorry no, no. But, um, but is that the <laughs> but is that, is that sensible advice for men too yeah. yeah 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 of course in that um it's one of those things it's one of those things where um like allies have like occupied this really weird space where they're like well what can i do to help i don't i don't and often like it comes from a really good place of not wanting to like hinder a discussion or whatever but i often often feel that like um for example in the gender debate that men have a responsibility like men allies have a responsibility to challenge the behaviors that women moan about right like they have a responsibility to challenge sexual harassment and challenge like loud banter and challenge all these things like in their own groups and it's a sad reality that men are more likely to listen to other men about these things than they are women and i think that is a powerful use of privilege that you can you can really take on so i think yeah definitely definitely like if you're if you're a guy or if you're an ally and you want to learn more about an issue like First of all, like Google it, like do your research. Um, there's so much, there's so much information out there, and there are so many great activists who have spent time writing about these things in a really informative and accessible way. So, like, if you have a question, first of all, Google it, and if you can't find the answer you're looking for, then like sensitively ask a friend who can explain it to you, and then take what you've learned and like use it in your circles. So. Like, I do this with, like, my white friends, for example, like, try and talk to them about things and try and change their behaviours in my, like, kind of white-only spaces and then use that, like, use that kind of privilege for, for good. And I think men, men should definitely do the same. Absolutely, and I, I like that. I, I think generally your your message that you said earlier, just everyone should be more informed. That's something I totally agree with uh, on a day to day basis. Um, <laughs> so the the last one, that's really, what, that was. Uh, I'm, I'm much I'm very pleased that I asked you that rather than the other possible question, which is far more bleak. Um, I think that's got a lot more positivity to it. Um, but it just it, it's this thing with every week I do these interviews, and at some point go, oh wow, this all sounds miserable. How are we going to get anything positive from this? So um, one last question then, in which case, again with a more positive uh, angle. 
Google, um, as well as what women want. What other um, campaigns, groups, writers, tweeters would you recommend for listeners um, to check out on the area of women's rights and equality issues? Um, I know you mentioned Sisters Uncut earlier. Um, yeah. Any others that you can recommend? Yeah, so, yeah, Sisters Uncut are fantastic in that I think they're drawing attention to this incredibly important issue and it's grassroots and raw and like angry in the best possible way and i think that they are doing really great stuff so um, i think they've got loads of chapters around london so like definitely google them and see how you can help whether it's donating money or attending one of their, their workshops um and then i don't know like i really love listening to the guilty feminist um so deborah francis white has such like a talent for tackling really tough issues with a humor that kind of brings everyone on board from every background um and i tend to listen to it on my way to work and it's it's um often makes me a lot more informed about things um anyway um and then i recently saw um this woman called ala murabit um speak at an event and she's a, a medical doctor and one of the uh un sustainable goal advocates um and a un high level commissioner and she did this incredible speech on the historic colonialism of healthcare but it's also just this fantastic advocate of women across the globe so like i will um send you her her handle but like follow her on twitter because she is just like my news source for a lot of things and is always on top of what's going on and often brings like really interesting articles that i just would not have found anywhere else um so she is also really awesome and lastly um a woman called joy Bulamwini, who again i'll like send you her um her handle but she basically started the uh, this thing called the algorithmic justice league which um is attempting to combat areas of bias in both the workplace and in algorithms so like a little bit of a twist but like it is um like obviously like a really important area of technology and i think algorithms um will have like and do have like a massive impact on society so like making sure that they are equal and fair is super important and she's also just there as this kind of like hero in stem which i think is so important for for young girls especially to to see so um and again she's just like an awesome news source and highlights a really cool issue so um definitely follow both of those Oh, God, sorry about that what the men's question. My brain said, hey, why don't you ask Charlotte in a very sensible way how men can be involved as well? Uh, and that was what I came out with. And that is why I've not been asked to host Newsnight yet. Sorry. Huge thanks to Charlotte for the chat. And you can find What Women Want 2.0 on Twitter at What Women Want XX, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash What Women Want 2.0. And do add the 2.0, or you really do get a page about that shitty Mel Gibson film. And online at thisiswhatwomenwant.org. Uh, you can also find Charlotte's own account on Twitter at Charchorley, C H A R C H O R L E Y, as well. Um, Equal Pay Day is on November the 10th, and you can read more about that and how you can help highlight the inequality and in pay for women via the Fawcett Society at Fawcett Society society.org.uk forward slash equal hyphen pay hyphen day as charlotte mentioned sisters uncut can be found at sistersuncut.org um, or at sisters uncut on twitter um, the guilty feminist podcast is brilliant um, and you can find that on all your favorite podcast providers if you don't already listen um, ali murabit can be found on twitter at a l m m u r a and joy bulamwini is on twitter at jovial joy so do check them all out too also, something that I don't do often enough, uh, considering how I make her read through this weekly to tell me which jokes are shit or not, uh, my wife, who is on Twitter, at Pro Resting, regularly highlights sexism in the acting industry uh, and also on the casting call Woe Tumblr, so please do check that out as well. Uh, and as I ask every single god diggity damn week, if you have someone you'd like me to talk to or an issue you'd like me to talk to someone about, just let me know. It is that easy. I will actually listen. Well, unless I see something shiny and distracting while you tell me about it. I mean, maybe don't tell me near a Baker Foil factory or a disco ball. Where you can tell me though is via at Parpobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can shine a giant Parpobro symbol into the sky at night, hoping that it'll summon me urgently so you can pass on your message, but in reality I'll probably not see it due to winter weather and you'll just get a cold and a terribly high electricity bill. So best just to email, isn't it? <laughs>
And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thank you again for listening to the show. And as I ask every week, like a broken record, which doesn't really make sense, because if you're old enough to remember records, they didn't really repeat when broken. They just, well, they just didn't play and they were very sharp and dangerous. So, as I say every week, like a repeating thing, possibly one of those birds, you know, the ones, the ones that repeats things. Please do tell other people about the show. Please do give it a view, uh, give it a like, uh, subscribe, um, do all those things on your favourite podcast apps. And please do donate via ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro if you can um, big thank you as always to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother The Last Skeptic for the music and don't forget you can get his latest album and his podcast from iTunes and all those sorts of places as well and this will be back next week where no doubt Pretty Patel will be in trouble for taking time out on her trip to Disneyland for having a meeting with Recep Erdogan on Space Mountain bye this week's show is brought to you by Paradise Papers, the only Rizzler paper made with £100 notes direct from the Queen that you can smoke knowing full well a hospital is struggling as you enjoy. If you could redesign the human body, what would you do? On the Level Up Human podcast, we ask experts and our audience how they would change our species and let our comedian judges decide what upgrades to slot into our DNA. Our guests have included experts like Alice Roberts, Marcus DeSotoy and Dean Burnett, and comedians Zoe Lyons, Hugh Dennis and Paul Sinha. Level Up Human, the science comedy panel show souping up the homo sapien. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.